Welcome to the Roots Report podcast, presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, Arwen Entertainment, the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Graysale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SE Microphones. I am your host, John Fusick. Today we have singer-songwriter Joan Osborne. She will be performing her breakthrough CD, Relish, in its entirety on Friday, May 13th at the Guard Arts Center in New London, Connecticut. Joan? It is. We actually met, oh, about 17 or 18 years ago at the Newport Folk Festival. We had lunch together. Oh, (laughs) I remember that festival because I was pregnant with my daughter that year. You were. You were very pregnant, I remember. I used to work for the Folk Festival and for Gibson, and uh, you and I were sitting at the Gibson booth having lunch. Nice. Yeah, that's such a great festival. I think think that might be the last time I played the Folk Festival. Can't really recall. It's, (laughs) It's all, you know, faded into the fog of the years gone by. The first time I saw you play was at Wetlands. Oh, wow. I think it was a Planned Parenthood uh, event with the Indigo Girls and Yola Tango mm-hmm. back in very early 90s, before your album came out, before uh, the Relish came out. Yeah. That was the first time I'd seen you and I remembered you. And when that, I mean, I come from Rhode Island, so I'd gone to New York for that show. Mm-hmm. And your album uh, came out and, and hit it. So I was like, oh, I had just seen her not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I uh, it, it would have been in the early 90s because I've, I've been doing stuff with Planned Parenthood since I think the, like 86 or 87. Um, so it's been, it would have been at that at that point, I think that they started to notice me as somebody who would be able to do a benefit and draw some people in and all of that. So, yeah. I noticed, I don't know if this is true or not, but I noticed that when you were playing Lilith Fair, you, you got blacklisted in Texas for speaking about Planned Parenthood. Yes. Um, we were set to play this, you know, big outdoor space in Texas. And I'm blanking on whether it was Houston or Dallas. I'm, I'm thinking it might've been Houston, but the owners of the venue said that, you know, all all of the, um, you know, that we had a lot of charity partners for Lilith and, and there were a lot of, you know, community and, uh, you know, activist people who were part of that festival. And there were a lot of booths and a lot of information being given out. And volunteers signed up and they said all of these people can come except Planned Parenthood. Hmm. And so there was an emergency meeting called with all the other performers. And, you know, of course, they were nobody was excited about this. Everybody was upset by it. And um, people were saying, I'm not going to go on unless you allow Planned Parenthood to be here. We've invited them here. And ultimately, what happened was they sort of brokered a deal where um, Planned Parenthood would be allowed to be in the space, but no one could talk about them from the stage. And it couldn't be mentioned from the stage. So you know, myself, having had this long history with Planned Parenthood, I just, I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to do what I need to do. So we, so the band and I went to the booth at the Planned Parenthood booth and we all got Planned Parenthood t-shirts and we wore them on stage. And then I, you know, came up to the mic and first thing I said was, we'd like to welcome our friends from Planned Parenthood. And so the venue people were upset with me and they said, you're never playing here again. So that's really the story. That's ridiculous. I mean, I'm, I'm a liberal person and I'm really getting very tired of all this stuff that the, these people in these like Texas and Florida are doing. Mm-hmm. It's just, they just want to set us back. And well, I think it's I think it's a very cynical fundraising strategy. I think it's an issue that they you know that the right has recognized as one that will energize their base. So whether they believe in it or not, they are really doubling down and tripling down on this anti 
anti-choice agenda because they understand that it gives them power and it gives them fundraising, you know, access and all of that. And so it's it's just a cynical ploy. The people who are hurt are not the, you know, well-off white people who will always be able to get access to that kind of care. It's, it's people who are on the margins who are really going to suffer. And, you know, women of color are the ones who suffer the most. And it's just really despicable, I think. It is. If it's, I don't know how anybody can even associate with these, people, with this, these states anymore because it's just... You know, I wish they would do more things like when they pulled out of the Carolinas with the, uh, the mm-hmm. baseball games and stuff. I wish more people would do things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I kind of wish Disney would actually at least threaten to pull out of Florida. I know it's logistically impossible, but they should at least threaten to, to pull out of Florida over their ridiculous mm-hmm. stances. I know, I know. It's um, it's dreadful. You know, we're, we're living in a pretty, um, we're living in a frightening time right now, you know, at the fascism and and all of its different variants are on the rise and have been for a while and and uh, it's it's scary so you're a pretty politically active person then well i have been you know i've found that in you know in particular like i, I was active certainly with planned parenthood and other you know feminist causes before i even had a record out um and then once my first record became my first major label record became successful you know there was this sort of crush of publicity and attention and focus and you know part of that of course i was gratified by because i was like oh well this you know this means that the record is a success and it's reaching more people but it also was not very comfortable for me just as a person to feel like i was under that sort of microscope and so i found that talking about political causes was a way to take that focus and redirect it onto something that i thought a deserved the focus more and b sort of took the the pressure off of me so it became you know a way to talk about things that i really cared about and still care about and also a way to, uh, you know, make things just easier for me to handle. I was like, well, uh, you know, I don't really want to do all these millions of (laughs) interviews and I want to have some time for myself, but at least I can talk about Planned Parenthood in them and and that makes it feel like it's worth it. When the uh, One of Us song came out, there was a little bit of a backlash against that song, wasn't it? Because religious people got a little, Mm -hmm. their panties in a wad over that one. (laughs) Yeah, so to speak. I mean, I I think, you know, there there was sort of a, a response to that song that was kind of in two camps. On the one hand, we got a lot of response from, you know, religious groups and religious leaders and people who were saying, this is wonderful that this pop song is talking about these matters of faith. And it's allowing us to have a a way to converse about this with younger people in our congregations or outside of our congregations. And it's a way to bring this up in in something that is really connecting with them. So we got a lot of letters of appreciation. But then we also got sort of the other side of it was people saying that the song was blasphemous and and you know I mean I got death threats and really? we had pickets outside of our concert in particular there was a show in Philly where people were picketing and I think it was it was partly because they objected to the song itself but they objected to me someone who was very vocal about being pro choice singing a song about god and to them that just sort of blew their minds and and they were all up in arms about it so yeah there was a a, a real moment when uh, you know when that was a big issue but you know again i just feel like people use people who are trying to advance this you know anti choice agenda just use these opportunities as a way to get themselves in the spotlight it, like they happened to come up with their objections and to pick at my show right around the time that the grammy awards was happening so they were really just piggybacking on this other attention that was already happening for the music and and just you know making it again i think it's just this very cynical way of 
trying to advance their agenda. I don't know if you remember back in the 70s, there was a, I think it was a nun thing that had done the Our Father as a as a rock song or a pop song. Yeah, I remember kinda, that, yeah. That kind of gave, you know, a little bit of controversy as well. I mean, it seems like no matter what, those kind of people are just always all twisted up about everything unless it's their one tunnel vision view of everything. They just can't mm-hmm. see outside of it. Well, I mean, I think that, that again, is, is the strategy for people who are trying to gain political power for themselves. If you keep people having, if you stoke this sense of grievance, then, uh, you know, people are, are activated to do something. And if you tell them, hey, you know, these, these other people are getting something that they don't deserve and they're taking something from you or they're doing something that's wrong and you have to do something about it, then whether, whether those people who are trying to be in power believe that or not, they are using it as a tool to, uh, you know, to fundraise, A, and to uh, energize a base that will come out and vote for them, B, and just to, to, main, to increase and maintain their own power. It's all just, it's all just about power politics. You know, it's, it's, I don't think that the vast majority of those people have any sort of feeling about the morality of it. I think it's really just about their own power and trying to seize more of it. And ironically, the thing is, is that, you know, these people are, are not, they're against choice. They're the ones that have no agenda to help people once they're born. They're just like, oh, mm, well, mm-hmm. we'll get them born, but we just don't want anything to do with you after you're born. It's just like you're on your own. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and mm-hmm. move on. And it's just ridiculous. Cause... I mean, honestly, I think if the state decides that it can tell a woman to continue a pregnancy that she doesn't want to continue, they should pay her. That's labor, you know? They should pay her and they should take care of the child once it's born. And they should, you know, they should put their money where their mouths are, but but they're not doing that. It's really about shaming women and it's about inciting this sense of of grievance in in their base so that they can take advantage of that for their own gain. Yep. It's just, it's very tiresome, but we thought this was over and decided in the 70s, but now evidently I know, it's going to... I know, and it has years. been in so many other countries. It ha- Even in Ireland has, exactly. you know, has, has legalized abortion, you know? Exactly, a very <laughs> religious insane. place, too, so... So you started yeah. off as a film major, and then you quit when you were doing open mic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I had moved to, I grew up in Kentucky, and I had moved to New York to go to college at NYU and study filmmaking, and... You know, I didn't come from a wealthy family. I was working to put myself through school. And at a certain point, I had had to pause um, my studies because I ran out of money. So I was working a bunch of jobs to save more money and go back to school and finish my degree. And that's when this friend of mine, or just really an acquaintance who lived in my building, um, invited me to go out for a drink. And um, we went to the first bar that we saw. And it happened to be this blues bar that is no longer there. It was called the Abilene Cafe. You know, we, we walked in. It was fairly late. The band had already finished but the piano player was still there playing just sort of for himself and the handful of people who were still in this place and my friend dared me to go up and sing a song and said I'll pay for the drinks if you go up and sing with that guy and I was I'm not sure why he asked me that and and I was like okay I will so I um I talked to the piano player and turns out that we you know we knew a song in common which is this billy holiday song god bless the child so i sang that and you know it, it wasn't like overnight i you know there was a producer in the audience who said i'm gonna make you famous or anything like that it was just that the piano player said oh you know that sounds pretty good why don't you come back 
to our open mic nights that we have once a week here. So I started doing that and I started, I, I was I was kind of terrified to do it actually because I'm a very shy person, but there was something about it that really sort of captivated me. So I kept coming back and I met musicians when I was, you know, I'd be waiting for my turn to go on the open mic and I'd start talking to these other people who were waiting and these musicians and found out about other open mics in the area, in the city. This was like the East Village area. and you know, ultimately really just kind of became a part of this whole scene that was going on. The open mic nights were a part of this music scene that was happening with, you know, bands playing in clubs and, and you know, people like the Holmes Brothers were playing at that time. People like the Blues Traveler and the Spin Doctors were just sort of cutting their teeth in clubs at that time. Jeff Buckley was playing around the clubs at that time, Chris Whitley. So there was a lot of great music going on. And the more I get into that, the less that I was focused on, you know, saving all my money to go back to school. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, I just decided, you know, there, there's something real here for me. And I, I think I would regret it if I didn't follow it and uh, and see where it leads me. That's a good thing you did. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever cross paths with Jack Hardy? Um, I don't think so. No, the name sounds familiar. I, I feel like I probably saw it on the on the club listings. He was uh, uh, he know, ran, back in the day. He ran Fast Folk magazine. Do you remember Fast Folk? Oh yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, he was a friend of mine. I did. I I was on one of the issues of Fast Folk back in the early '90s too. I just didn't know if you. Because he was more of a folk person, and you were more of a blues, but there were people who crossed over and did stuff with him. Yeah. I just wasn't sure, because, you know, he was big in New York City, so... No, I wasn't. I wasn't really that much part of the folk scene, as you say. I was more in, in the blues lane, the blues and the rock lane, um, but certainly I knew of the Fast Folk magazine, yeah. Did you ever... Um, what was it that you inspired to start Womanly Hips Records, just to put out your own recording <laughs> at first? Or? Yeah, I mean, it was really just a practical matter. Um, we had, at that point, we had gone from myself and the, and the musicians that I was working with, we had gone from performing just in New York City to branching out to places like Boston and up to Benning and Vermont and down to D.C. and Philly and Buffalo and Syracuse. And we were starting to play all around the Northeast. And so at the end of every show, people would come up to me and say, where's your album? I want to buy your album. And we just, we didn't have one. <laughs> um, so it it was really just, oh, I guess I'd better get on this and do something about it. You know, there were no record companies lining up to sign me for a deal. So I went to the library and I went to bookstores. And, you know, because in, in the 1980s, in the punk scene, there was this very strong DIY aesthetic. And, you know, bands like Fugazi out of D.C. Um, had already really, you know, set this precedent of putting out your own albums and owning your own stuff. And, and so there was some literature available for people who were interested in doing that. So I bought a couple of books and checked out some more books from the library. And it just, you know, just sort of went step by step through the process. And I got some funding from this guy, Peter Honerkamp, who runs a club um, out on, on the east coast of Long Island called Stephen Talk House. And he put up some of the money. We recorded a live show that uh, in a club that we worked in all the time and then made that into our first album and you know to this is to show you how old this was most of what we sold was cassettes back then so <laughs> i remember mm -hmm. those days and that i mean it wasn't cheap i mean the first run of cds that i got was like half cds and half cassettes and it was it was a pricey uh, investment at that time because they weren't cheap yeah i mean you had to 
you had to believe in yourself and you had to have some people who also believed in you. So it, it wouldn't have happened without Peter Honekamp, definitely. Yeah, it, it took a lot about him. I mean, the rec- I mean, you did a recording of a live <clears throat> gig, which was a lot cheaper than studio time, too. Which- yeah, and because that's what people were excited by, you know, they would come to the live shows and that's what they were excited by. So it seemed like the best thing to do to just give them more of what they already liked. So how did you hook up with uh, Eric from the Hooters? I didn't mm. know I didn't know he was from the Hooters. Not many people remember the Hooters either from the 80s. Well, he, yeah, Eric has a partner, Rob Hyman, and they were both in the Hooters. And they, you know, they still were active and still doing stuff. Um, they had moved on more to writing and production. And they had had a big hit working uh, with Cyndi Lauper and, and uh, so they were more in that world at that point. They still, you know, the Hooters were still alive, but they weren't performing as much as they had been. So Rob Hyman happened to be at a show that I was doing down in Philly. And after the show, he came backstage and he was all excited. And he said, you know, my friend Rick Chertoff, who's a producer, he just got his own imprint at Mercury. And I think he would love what you're doing and you should meet with him. And and so I set up an appointment with Rick Chertoff, who um, had also, he was the producer of the that first Cindy Lauper record that, um, you know, had uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun on it and all those hits. Um, so I went and had a meeting with him and we really, we really hit it off. You know, we started talking and, and this half an hour meeting stretched to like two hours. And we just had a lot, I think, in common about what we wanted to do in music. So from that meeting, um, we started talking about how we might want to work together. And because Rick had had such, such a success, not only with Cindy Lauper, but also with Sophie B. Hawkins, working with Rob and Eric. And because Rob was so excited uh, himself about working with me from seeing our live show, we decided, we agreed that this is what we would do, the four of us. Rob and Eric and Rick Chertoff and I would go into a studio and write material and record it, and that would be the first record. So um, so that's how it all came about. You got this Relish CD out, and this is the tour that you're... You're only going out for eight dates for this for this tour, or is this a, just a makeup date for this, uh, this show? This is just a makeup date, yeah. So you're not doing any more Relish shows? It's just this one that's a Relish show? It's actually this one and then another one that is a makeup date. Um, and then, yeah, we're not doing a, a whole tour of relish material although we're sort of tempted to do that and maybe even to try to record an acoustic version of these relish tunes because in working with the musicians that i'm traveling with uh, jack petrozelli and keith cotton um we're coming up with these sort of new arrangements and new ways of presenting these songs which we find really interesting and and i think maybe the fans would would like that too so um so we're toying with the idea of taking these new arrangements and recording them and doing like more of an acoustic stripped down version of the songs and if we do that and put out a record like that then we would almost certainly tour behind it but for now it's just this date and another one in maybe pittsburgh gosh i can't even remember (laughs) and another one that um that we're doing so it's uh so if you really want to see us doing relish material you should come out and see this because there's no guarantee we'll do it again right yeah that's what i mean i i saw this and i was you know not a lot of people do it these days where they focus Mm -hmm. on the one album and so you're going to be playing the whole album. Are you going to be playing anything in addition to stuff on that album, or is that just it, just that album? I mean, because it's a double bill with Madeline Peru, and we each have a, a more limited stage time, it it might just be the relish material, and that's it. We have a lot of new material. Um, you know, we put out a record in 2020. 
called Trouble and Strife, and there's new songs from that that we're playing live. But I think given um, given the time constraints of this particular show, we will stick to the Relish material. Now, how did you hook up with Madeline to do this show? Is this Have you done shows with her before? Yeah, I mean, I've known Madeline for a long, long time and, and been a fan of hers for a long, long time. Um, I think this particular tour came about because each of our booking agents, um, you know, were in contact with each other and said, hey, this would be a great double bill. Why don't we try to make this happen? So I think the the agency people are the ones who uh, put this together. But in fact, she and I did a show together a handful of years ago. I was working on this notion called a covers challenge where um, where two artists would get together and each of them would cover material by other artists and have it be almost like a competition. Um, and Madeline was one of the Madeline was one of the first people who agreed to do it. And we had so much fun. We did Bee Gees songs and <laughs> and uh, you know we we just did all this cool stuff together uh, and we had a great time so so we really connected doing that together and when the idea came up uh, for us to do a, a longer tour together I was like yes let's do it this would be amazing now you had toured previously as doing Knights of Dylan music mm-hmm that's right and how were those shows I, I didn't get to one of those shows but I, I'm sure it was good because you've recorded Dylan's show songs on your albums already yeah I had already recorded a Dylan song on the relish album and another one on the righteous love album um, but we decided to do an entire record of Bob Dylan songs and that came out in 2017 so so we toured a lot behind that and uh, it was it was really Amazing. You know, I, I, I have to say so many people came up to me afterwards and in particular women came up to me afterwards and were like, you know, I mean, I knew about Bob Dylan. I knew he was great, but I didn't really understand how great he was until hearing these songs with you singing them because, you know, Bob Dylan, of course, is an amazing genius and he's incredible. But I think his singing voice, you know, some people love it. I happen to love it. Other people don't quite get it. So if you're hearing someone else with a voice that you already like doing these songs, I think it opens up your appreciation of them. At least that's what a lot of people told us. So uh, so we were really, you know, we had so much fun digging into that material. And, you know, I sort of felt like like an actor doing Shakespeare, you know, I mean, that just the depth of the material is so incredible. And then, you know, the audience loved these shows and they, and we, we did that for a long time and, and uh, we had great response from that. Yeah, I heard a lot of good things about the shows. I Like I said, I, I get busy with my own stuff sometimes, and I don't always get to a lot of shows. And I'm disappointed mm-hmm. because I, I do like your material a lot, I, and I like your voice. and But I don't always get to shows, so it's, it's unfortunate. Oh, I hear you. I'm the same. Yeah, it's that's kind of the... The, uh, the bad thing about doing this, you know, in, in the way that we do it is that you want to go out and see everybody else, but you're always working yourself. Right, you know? right, right. So looping back to uh, to the Relish thing, when you did the St. Mm-hmm. Teresa video, you, you conceptualized that and directed that video yourself? Yeah, I did. I, you know, I had been a film student and in particular was a big fan of uh, like surrealist directors like Louis Bunuel. And uh, so I had this idea to to make this sort of surreal little movie uh, out of the video. Uh, so we just... You're going to be playing the Guard Theater on May 13th. You're going to be doing the Relish CD. Anything you want to throw in before it's time to go? Um, I guess just, you know, that I'm so grateful to the fans that I have. You know, I've been able to do this for 30 years now, and it's, you know, not everybody gets to have a long career. So I, I really have to say that it's because of the fans who've stayed with me all this time. And it's just, I'm so grateful. In particular, you know, having been kind of grounded by COVID and not being able to do shows, now that we're back at it again, it's just such a relief and such a joy to come out and play live music in front of actual human beings. You know? And what's your favorite song off of Relish to play? Oh, gosh. 
That's a, that's not a fair question. <laughs> I don't have a favorite. It's like asking what your who your favorite kid is. I can't I can't answer that question. Well, I think my favorite seat, uh, song off of that is Lumina. I love that song. It's a beautiful, oh, we yeah. Song. Thank you. We've put that back in the set and and in the in the regular show too, not just the Relish show. And and that's really it's. I do love doing that one again. And of course, you will be playing that song. Yes, yes, we will. I really appreciate you taking the time and calling. And it's been a pleasure chatting with you. And hopefully, if I don't have a show, I can get to your show on May thirteenth at the Guard Theater in in Connecticut. All right. Well, hopefully, we'll see you then. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okie dokie. Thanks to Joan Osborne for being part of this episode of the Roots Report podcast. She will be performing her breakthrough CD, Relish, in its entirety on Friday, May 13th at the Guard Arts Center in New London, Connecticut. Also on the bill is Madeline Peru, who will be performing her CD, Careless Love. That's guardartscenter.org. G-A-R-D-E-A-R-T-S dot org. The Roots Report podcast is presented by Motif Magazine and sponsored by The Parlor, Arwen Entertainment, The Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden, Grace Ale Brewing of Rhode Island, and SC Microphones. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.